Good morning. Anonymous shares her story on the Q&A website, Cora. Listen to what she says. We first met when I was 16. He was cute and charismatic. It was 1997, but the cool leather jacket he wore made him look like James Dean, the iconic Hollywood star of the 50s. I was a very intelligent but apathetic girl attending an all-girl Catholic school. We became everything at once, best friends, serious partners, adults. Although we were young, we settled down and married. And we became pregnant, so I became a mom. And I became really good at being a mom. I loved being a mom. I recall late nights as my newborn uh, fell asleep on my breast and I was reclining in the living room and my husband and I, we would be playing on the PlayStation, baseball and other things like that. Some nights we'd pose for each other and we'd sketch each other. Some nights we would just dream together about our future. The years went by and we had the perfect white picket fence and we had friends that looked good on the outside but I didn't really relate to them all that well. And as years went on, I saw a man I loved, but I, I wasn't sure I was ever supposed to be with. Ten years had passed along, and one day, the love was gone. My husband came home one morning after buying us breakfast from a local cafe, and I told him I was leaving him. I had fallen out of love. Somebody put it this way, falling in love is easy, staying in love is a different story. The New Testament, I think it's kind of interesting, the New Testament refers to the church, the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ. It doesn't refer to the body of Christ as the, the wife of Christ, but it's, we're the bride of Christ. And I think in that title, in that description, it implies that we ought to stay in that honeymoon phase, if you will, of our, with our relationship with Christ. That, that passion, that devotion, that desire, that ought to mark us as believers and as Christians. But if you've been in the Christian life for a long time, you know that that's really not always the case, is it? That there are times when that, that routine, Bible reading, prayer, going to prayer meeting, going to church, going to Sunday school, that routine starts to become very mechanical, very ritualistic. That sense of over-familiarity. Oh, he's going to preach about that story. I know that story. Oh, I know that paragraph. I know that text. And that sense of been there, done that. Oh, yeah, I've been on mission trips. Oh, yeah, I've, you know, I've, I've fasted. That sense of been there, done that routine. It starts to drain, drain away our passion and our desire and our fire for the Lord. You know, the church in Ephesus was an amazing church. It was an amazing church. If you've ever been into some churches, you know, and they, uh, in their church office or maybe on the narthex, they have pictures of former pastors of the church. My first church was like that. There's all these different people who'd pastored that church. Well, in the church of Ephesus, if they had done something like that in the first century, there'd be a portrait of the Apostle Paul on the wall. Like the planting pastor, the founding pastor, is the great Paul. And then next to that, you'd have Timothy, like Paul's right-hand man. He pastored that church. And then next to him, you'd have the beloved disciple, the Apostle John. It's like a who's who of who's pastored this church at Ephesus. They're an amazing church. And in fact, towards the end of the first century, uh, when the risen Lord Jesus speaks to that church in the book of Revelation, it's the first church that he addresses. 
And he says, I know your works. I know your deeds. I know your perseverance. I know your endurance. I know you've suffered for my sake and you've not grown weary. And I know you've tested those who call themselves apostles and you've found them to be false. I know that. That's great. But the Lord says, I have something against you. You've lost your first love. You've abandoned your first love. You've left your first love. That passion, that devotion, that desire that you used to have is gone. The Ephesian church needed spiritual renewal. Is that you this morning? Like maybe you are tired. Maybe you are fatigued. Maybe it's just like, is this all there is? And you need spiritual renewal. I mean, life on good days can be quite difficult, but when you throw into that the pandemic and COVID and isolation, it just adds to the burden, the emotional burden, the spiritual burden, and we find ourselves more easily at a place of needing spiritual renewal. If that's you, then the question is, how can we pray for spiritual renewal? And for the Ephesians, they would have had to have turned back and had the opportunity to turn back or look in their church library, if you will, to a letter that Paul had written uh, some 30 years earlier. It's the letter of Ephesians, and I invite you to turn there with me right now to Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And I think uh, Paul's prayer, the gist of Paul's prayer is, is this, that spiritual renewal results from passionately pursuing God for true spiritual power that only comes from a deeper experience of God's love. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we, all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory to the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence, thanking you for the gift of your word that it's divinely revealed, inspired, and inerrant for faith and practice. And so we are grateful that this is, this is a sacred text that's sharper than any double-edged sword, and your Spirit works it into our hearts, into our minds. And so we pray a prayer of release for your Spirit to do what only He can do with this Word in our hearts and in our minds. Father, I pray for people who are tuning in that you would speak to each one very specifically according to their need as you see their need that some would receive that, that holy tap on the shoulder or that sense of, that inner sense of you speaking specifically to them. Would you encourage? Would you comfort? Would you rebuke and challenge and, and um, teach this day in Jesus' name? Amen. 
So spiritual renewal results from passionately pursuing God for true spiritual power that only comes from a deeper experience of God's love. So before we actually get to the prayer, let me begin with a little bit of context, literary context. So verse 14 um, begins with, for this reason. right? So Paul is looking back, for this reason. So it goes back to the previous paragraph, which is 3.1 to 13. And if you go to 3.1, 3.1 says, for this reason. So that's looking back. And so it's looking back to chapter 2, specifically the latter half of chapter 2, where Paul goes into great detail as to God's working, um, producing uh, spiritual oneness. Right? That that's the mystery, this oneness that results from the gospel, that formerly hostile peoples, Jews and Gentiles, separate for millennia, separate, now through the gospel, become not two different peoples of God, one people of God, which it was off everybody's radar. Nobody saw it coming, but it becomes a reality through the gospel, that oneness. And so 3, 1 to, 3, uh, 3, 1 to 13, Paul speaks of his own unique apostolic role in bringing about oneness, and he talks about how uh, he administers God's grace through preaching, right, through the preaching of the gospel, uh, but we know as an apostle, he also administers God's grace through prayer, right? That's what Peter said in, in Acts 6, where this, this uh, uh, conflict broke out between different segments of the church. And he said, okay, choose seven deacons to deal with that. But as for us apostles, we need to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. And so Paul administers grace as an apostle through the ministry of the word, preaching and teaching of the gospel, but also through prayer. And so... Not surprisingly, he prays again for the church. He'd already prayed for them in in, uh, chapter 1, but here he prays again differently for them here in chapter 3. And so from this this prayer, I think uh, the answer to this prayer is spiritual renewal. So, So if we want to experience spiritual renewal from this passage, the first thing we need to ask God for is spiritual power. Right, if you want to experience spiritual renewal, we need to ask God for spiritual power. Now note well, prayer for power comes from a humble heart. Verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Right, so Paul is talking about, he's describing his prayer, and he doesn't say, uh, for this reason I pray before the Father, which is what he's doing, or I intercede before the Father. He says, I kneel. And kneeling is not a power position, right? If you're a boss, if you're an employer, and you have to let somebody go, maybe they're inept, maybe they're corrupt, and you have to fire them, you don't call them into your office and say, okay, Fred, you've just been a horrible worker, you're fired. No. Or, again, you have to, as a parent, you have to discipline your child, and they've been rebellious, and so you call Johnny into your room, and you Johnny, your mom and I have been talking, and you know what? We have to ground you for a month. Like, kneeling is not a power position, right? Kneeling is a position of humility. This prayer for power comes from an attitude of humility because we can't demand anything from God, right? God is a creator. We are the creature God is omni-everything. We're omni-nothing. We bring nothing to the bargaining table. This prayer, of humili- this, this prayer for power comes from a complete attitude of humility before God. The word for kneel there 
It's a present tense in the Greek, which means that this is simply, a, this is not a one-off for Paul. Right? Like Paul regularly kneels before the Father. He regularly has his attitude of humility in prayer for other people. And this power of God that Paul asked for, it works from the inside out. It works from the inside out. Look at verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Right, so it's, it's God's power, it's not our power. He's the source. The word for strengthen there in verse 16, it's a passive, uh, and theologians refer to that as the divine passive, which means God is the one doing the, the action there. So it's not about Paul uh, praying that believers strengthen themselves, which is what we do when we you know, have devotions, that kind of stuff. We're spiritually strengthening ourselves. But no, in this prayer, God is the one who's strengthening us. He's the one who's doing the, who's doing the strengthening. Right? God is the power source, not us. And God's power, to quote Jen Wilkin, is limitless. Right? He uses, Paul uses here two power words strength, in verse 16, strength and power, where only one would have done. Right? One would do, but he uses two, so he's emphasizing the mightiness of God's power. Right? God doesn't just have power. God has all power. Right? God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. And we see God's limitless power, for example, if we drop down to verse 20, which says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Right? I would translate that more literally to the one who continually has power above all things to do beyond all measure what we ask or understand according to the power that works continually in us. God's power is limitless. And God's power works from the inside out, right? The, the back end of verse 16, that he'd strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And this is something that we often get mixed up in the Christian life, in the church. We tend to be like Pharisees, right? The Pharisees of Jesus' day, they focused on the outside to the exclusion of the inside. So as long as you lined up and looked good and doing all the right things, then you could assume all is right in here. And Jesus called that out numerous times. He said, no, that's not the case necessarily. In the last 15 years, there's been this, uh, maybe even 20 years, closer to 20 years, this huge renaissance of home improvement TV shows. They have networks that are dedicated to home improvement. And uh, I remember one show was called Reno Nightmares and watching uh, this one particular episode where there's a couple, they were having problems with this old furnace. They're in an old house with an old furnace and they're having problems. So they decided to replace the furnace with a brand new furnace. State-of-the-art, shiny, digital, readouts, all this stuff. But they wanted to, they wanted to save a little bit of money. So... They purchased the furnace, but they had their uncle, who was a very um, skilled tradesperson. Not, he didn't sp uh, specialize in furnaces or ACs, but he's just jack-of-all-trades, can do anything. And so the uncle installed it, but then they were still having some problems, right? So they bring in the uncle and say, okay, well, we're going to have to just, just, it's still under warranty, so we replace, you know, the venter mortar or some other things. And, you know, it was still either blowing hot or cold, not going on, not going off, and having all these problems. So, finally, this home inspector comes in, not for that, but just for other things. This home inspector comes in, and they just kind of tell him the problem. 
the home inspector looks at it and says, well, the problem is you need a chimney liner because the new furnaces don't blow as hot as the older furnaces, and so they need help in getting out the exhaust. So when they did that, got the chimney liner, it worked like a charm. See, that furnace looked great on the outside. You could eat off it. It was so shiny and new, but on the inside, it wasn't working properly. Right? We assume that if it's good on the outside, then it's good on the inside, and that's not always the case, is it? God's power works not from the outside in. It works from the inside out. Right? He and his power transforms how we think. When your mind is in neutral, when your mind slips into neutral, what do you think about? Like when you don't have to think about a task or anything else, your mind just slips into neutral. What do you think about? Right? Are you thinking about money? Are you thinking about sex? Are you thinking about uh, just fearful things? Angry? Like what are you thinking about? Where does your mind go? God's power transforms how we think and shapes our mind such that our mind conforms to the mind of Christ, as Paul will say elsewhere. God's power transforms how we feel. What is your default emotion? Right? Is your default emotion anger? Or is it, is it fear? Or is it confusion? God's power transforms how we feel. Right? It transforms us from the inside out. I am not the same person I was 15 years ago. And my wife is not the same person she was 15 years ago. Because by God's grace, God has been transforming us with plenty of ups and downs, but he's been shaping us and transforming us from the inside out. God's power reveals more of Christ. Look at this. This is so interesting. Verse 17. Paul prays this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Wait a minute. He's not writing unbelievers. He's writing Christians. Well, I thought the moment you receive Christ as Lord, the moment you repented of your sins and believed the gospel and received Christ, that's when Christ came to live inside of you. So how is it that he's now praying that Christ would live inside them? So D.A. Carson, the uh, famous New Testament scholar, commented on this prayer in particular. And this is what he says. He says that spiritual renewal involves Christ building his home in us. Picture a young couple. They buy their first, their first home. And it's a real fixer-upper, right? The, the roof leaks, windows leak, the furnace needs replacing, there's ugly wallpaper on the walls, the cupboards are worn and crickety, and the yard is just filled with mounds of garbage. Well, over the next five to ten years, they remodel. They replace the roof. They replace the windows with storm windows. They replace the furnace. They paint. They renovate the kitchen. They renovate the front. They landscape the backyard so it has a nice water fountain, uh, rock garden fountain, and all that stuff in the backyard. And so then one day, the husband and wife are sitting on the veranda, which is part of the reno, and he turns to his wife and says, you know what, I really like it here. Like this house has been transformed according to our needs, according to our desires. And I really like it. I really love it. This house has truly become our home. Carson writes, when Jesus takes up residence in our hearts, he finds the moral equivalent of mounds of garbage, messy yard, leaks, 
and all kinds of things begging for repair and replacement. And he sets about to turn this house into his home, one that suits him. See, Jesus accepts us as, he, as we are, but he makes us into what we are not. Right? Jesus accepts us just as we are, just as I am without one plea. Jesus accepts us, but he doesn't leave us there, and he makes us into something that we are not, namely more like him through the power of his Holy Spirit. You see, we like to rearrange stuff. God's not into the rearranging business. He's into the transforming, changing business, right? Like when we rearrange, nothing's wrong in and of itself of rearranging stuff, but when we do it to the exclusion, uh, just focusing on the outside to the neglect of the inside, that's where the issue is. If you talk with, say, addiction counselors who are dealing with people who are addicted to various things, there's, there's some, some uh, activities and things you can do on the outside to kind of help with that, you know, on, with this, when this comes on you, chew gum or this, whatever, but they'll tell you, until the inside gets addressed, till the inside is healed, the addiction is always there. It's about dealing with the heart. Spiritual renewal involves Christ taking control of a heart. Carson writes, true, the spiritual power uh, is not the power to control, but the power to be controlled by Christ. And spiritual renewal involves recognizing our inadequacy, right? We're saved by faith, but we're also sanctified. Sanctified meaning becoming more like Christ, meaning spiritual maturity. We're sanctified by that same saving faith, right? Like when we become Christians through faith in Christ and the gospel, we don't check our faith at the entrance, at the door. We continue to exercise that faith, trusting Christ to make us more like him. So we never stop living by faith. We continue to live by faith. Faith that we're saved, but then faith that God is going to continue to change us and make us more like Jesus. So let me ask you a question this morning. Is your heart Christ's home? Is your heart Christ's home? Or have you simply relegated Jesus to, I don't know, like the basement? Let us know if you need anything, Jesus. Or Jesus is simply relegated to the spare room, which is a really nice room. But that's his territory. Is your heart Christ's home? If we want to experience spiritual renewal, we need to ask God for spiritual power. And secondly, if we want to experience spiritual renewal, we need to ask God for a deeper understanding of his love. Look at verses 17 and 18. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So we sing about God's love for us, right? But there's so many songs. If I were to ask you, name a song uh, that mentions God's love. Like we could just, with some thought, just song after song after song. We sing about God's love, but do we really get it? Like we get it with our heads, but do we really get it from the heart? Paul doesn't seem to think so, which is precisely why he's praying that we would get it. It's about God, by his spirit, deepening our grasp of something we already have. 
right? Verse 17 says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love, in his love, in God's love, right? The words rooted and established, again, we're dealing with a passive voice verb. So God is the subject. God is the one who's rooted us. God is the one who has established us. So it's not about my love for God growing. Those are other texts. But it's about me growing in my experience of God's love. And again, these words rooted and established, in the Greek, they're what's called a perfect tense. So we don't really have a perfect tense in English. Uh, but the perfect tense uh, basically refers to a, a past-completed act that has ongoing consequences, ongoing results. So, for example, three years ago, I was um, reading a paper at a conference in San Diego. I flew out of uh, uh, to Pearson. It was an 8 o'clock flight, and we left with plenty of time, Uber, but there was an accident on the 401. So I missed my flight. So the past completed action is I missed that 8 a.m. flight. You can only miss that 8 a.m. flight out of Pearson that day once. It's a past completed action. But there's ongoing results from that past completed action. It totally flipped the conference for me. I, you know, I, I, my next flight wasn't until eight hours later. The, the sessions I was supposed to be at, I couldn't be at. The people I was supposed to meet, I couldn't meet. That past completed action had all these results coming from it. Well, the perfect tense for these two words, rooted and established. The past completed action is that in eternity past, God set his love on us. He set his love on us. Here, John says, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us first. Right? God did not love us because he foresaw that we would love him, therefore he loved No. We love God because he first loved us. In eternity past, before he ever created us, he chose to set his love on us. And then, past completed act, the Father sent the Son to die for us on the cross. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because of these past completed acts, we can therefore now know God intimately. Right? Look at the first part of verse 19. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. We can know God intimately. The word for know there, it's referring to an intimate experience, not simply head knowledge. So, for example, the same Greek word appears uh, in Luke 2 or Luke 1, where the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you're highly favored. Uh, you're going to bear a son, and he's going to be uh, called son of the most high. And, and Mary's response is, uh, well, how can this be? Because, and literally, literally the Greek says, because I don't know a man. I don't know a man. Okay, well, she's got a dad. Uh, she's got uncles. She, maybe she doesn't have brothers, but she's got male cousins. How do you know you don't know? Like what? Don't know? No, I don't know a man intimately, which is why modern translations will say, I'm a virgin. How's this going to be? Right? So the knowing of God here is not simply head knowledge. It's knowing God intimately. Because of these past completed acts, we can now know God intimately. And the thing is, we need a deeper experience of God's love in order to become spiritually mature. Verse 19 again. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And for Paul, when Paul talks about, has that expression, all the fullness of God, that's a synonym for Christ-likeness, for spiritual maturity, right, for sanctification. 
See, our spiritual maturity depends on our experience of God's love for us. It really does. And I think Jesus taught something kind of similar to that. In Luke chapter 7, you recall the story where uh, Jesus is having dinner in the home of Simon the Pharisee. And so while they're reclining and eating, this prostitute comes in and takes this expensive jar of perfume and breaks it and anoints Jesus' head and anoints his feet and starts to wash his feet with his expensive perfume with her hair. And Simon, the Pharisee, leans over to his cronies and says, man, if this guy really was a prophet, he would know who's touching him, who's touching his feet. Does he know where those hands have been? Does he know where that hair has been? And Jesus, of course, knows what they're thinking. And so Jesus says, hey, Simon, let me, can I tell you a story? Simon says, tell it, teacher. So you have two slaves, two servants, to the, to the same one master. And they are indebted to the master. The one is into the master for 100 bucks. The other one owes the master 100,000 bucks. And neither of them have the money, the means to pay off these debts. Not the $100 debt, nor the $100,000 debt. The master calls them and, hey guys, I'm feeling generous today. Your debt is canceled. Paid in full. Go in peace. So Simon, which servant do you think will love the master more? And Simon says, well, the one that was into him for the bigger debt. Yes. And Jesus will say, whoever has been forgiven much loves much, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. That prostitute knows that she's been forgiven a lot. And therefore, she loves a lot. You guys think you've only been forgiven five bucks. You're into God for ten bucks. You're into God for a hundred bucks. And you think if you had enough time, you could pay off that debt. And that's the problem. That's a huge issue with a lot of us Christians. Like with our head, we know. With our head, we know. I have such debts with God. I could never pay God back. We know that with our head. But in our hearts, in our heart of hearts, we know, well, I'm not like that pedophile who, comes to, who may come to Christ. I'm not like that prostitute. I'm not like that serial killer. Ted Bundy came to Christ at the end of his life. I'm not, like, I'm not that bad. I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. So yeah, they're on the hook for billion-dollar debt. My debt with God, not quite that high. And that's why if they come to faith... They are on fire, but for the rest of us, eh. Our spiritual maturity depends on our experience of God's love for us. And I think we see the same principle, uh, the relationship between maturity, the, the process of maturity and love. I think we see that principle played out in the natural realm as well. So one of my professors at Trinity Divinity School, which is a seminary I went to, was a guy by the name of Perry Downs. And Perry and his wife, Perry was a really cool guy, and uh, Perry and his wife, they would foster kids. And um, like they're in the Chicagoland area, they would foster kids. And, and usually they would foster kids who were one at a time and kids who were between six to 10. That was kind of their sweet spot. Well, on one particular occasion, uh, the agency approached them and said, hey, you know, we have twin 18-month-old boys. Could you foster them? And they're like, uh, okay, A, they're toddlers. We don't do toddlers. B, there's two of them, and we just do singles. But can we get back to you? And they're like, sure, get back to us. So they went away. They prayed about it. 
And the Downsers uh, came back and said, okay, we'll take them, but like, we only want them for six weeks. And the agencies, absolutely, that's great. Thank you so much. So they take them. First night in the Downsers' home, uh, they put the kids to bed. They have two cribs set up in the room, put them to bed. They go downstairs, they're watching TV. And as they're watching TV, Perry just kind of mutes the TV and says, do you hear that? And his wife's like, I don't hear anything. He's like, exactly. So he creeps upstairs quietly, and he goes to the room and just quietly opens the door so he can see what's going on. And he sees each of them in their cribs, and they're bawling, but they're not making a noise. Just tears, rivers of tears. They're sitting up, rivers of tears. They are not making a noise, but they're bawling. So Perry went back to the agent and said, oh, well, what's going on here? Well, it turns out that the Downses were the ninth foster home for these twins. And in a number of the previous homes, they had been beaten severely for crying. And so we did a little more digging and found out that uh, they had done some t psychological testing on these twins. And because of the severe beating that they had incurred at these other homes, they were now ir irremediably damaged intellectually and emotionally. So the Downsers came back to the agency and said, you know, um, we, we don't want them for six weeks anymore. They kept them for two years. For two years. And when they were adopted at the end of that time, they were tested again, and they were now, they now tested within the normal range for intellectual and emotional development. Now, brothers and sisters, the grace of God can do absolutely anything, absolutely anything. But apart from the grace of God and all things being equal, a child will not and cannot grow into full intellectual and, mature, uh, and emotional maturity apart from the stability of a loving home. I think that's Paul's working assumption here, that a Christian cannot grow to full spiritual maturity apart from knowing and experiencing God's love from the heart. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you in need of spiritual renewal? Remember, spiritual renewal results from passionately pursuing God for true spiritual power that only comes from a deeper experience of his love. And why would God answer this prayer? Look at the last verse, verse 21. To him, to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Because this type of prayer brings glory to God and God is out to gain glory that's rightfully his. And as God is glorified, we benefit. We are blessed as a result of God uh, achieving his glory. That's why he would answer this prayer. So will you pray for spiritual renewal, will you pray for spiritual power? Of course, the greatest manifestation of God's power is new life in Christ. Is new life in Christ. When God takes a man, like the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, God took Saul of Tarsus, who was a Christ hater, was a Christian killer, who went around persecuting the faith to death, took that person, that 
Osama bin Laden-like person. And with the power of God, the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now came and dwelled in him, he became a Christian pioneer, perhaps the greatest giant in the, in the Christian church. That's the greatest manifestation of the power of God is new life in Christ, taking an unbeliever and making them a Christian. So let me ask you this morning. If you're here watching, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I would urge you, I would encourage you to repent and receive Jesus. Paul's Jesus can be your Jesus if you place your faith in him and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. For the rest of us, will you join me, will you join Paul in praying for spiritual renewal? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord God, that you have not left us as orphans, We might feel alone as your children, feel isolated, but you have not left us as as orphans, that you are there. You are here. Holding us by the hand, your embrace around us, leading us, guiding us. It's just that our eyes are often closed to your presence with us. Our hearts are sometimes closed up through hurts that, that... Keep us from seeing your hand at work in us and around us. Father, your power, the very power there is, Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells in us through faith in Jesus. Would you, Lord, would you by your spirit change each one of us, each one of us, every person who's tuning in now, change us from the inside out. Change how we think. Change how we feel. Change the attitudes of our heart that you might conform us more closely into the image of your son, Jesus. And Lord, would you deepen our experience of your love for us? We just know the tip of the tip of the iceberg. And there's so much more that you want to show us. And only knowing that tip inhibits us from moving forward. Yes, we continue to move forward and mature, thank God. But we miss so much. And our forward progress is impeded. And so we pray, Lord, that you would deepen our understanding, our grasp, our experience of your infinite, perfect love for us. That we wouldn't just simply know it from the head, God, but we would know it and feel it from the heart, in a heart of hearts. We thank you and we praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.